Hello, I'm Charles Clausen, your host of the Ampex Podcast, a show where we engage in conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators whose wild ideas and exponential thinking are reshaping the universe where we live, play, and work. I believe these powerful conversations will inspire you to pursue your dreams. Good morning and welcome, Allison. Thank you. Good morning. Happy to be here. We're excited to have Allison. She's a educator um, in special education at the University of Iowa. She's also the executive director of the Scanlon School for Mental Health at the University of Iowa, which is a novel um, new innovation, I think, in terms of uh, mental health of students, faculty, educators, and all of Iowa's 99 counties. Mm -hmm. um, working with programs to help all of them and challenging times in education um, and Allison's team's on the forefront of it all. So before we get into your passion in education and what you do, um, I always like to ask all of our guests um, who were doing exciting and inspirational work when they were younger, what motivated them and, and inspired them to be creative and guided you to where you are today, Allison? <laughs> well, I'm not sure I had inspiration to be creative necessarily. Oh, well, maybe that's not true. But when I was younger, I mean, I think I had a couple of really good mentors in my life. Um, one of them was my eighth grade teacher. And she her motto for the class was go above and beyond. And I just absolutely loved her. So that was always sort of in the back of my head. Um, that that was what I was supposed to do in everything that I do. And my high school softball coach kind of took that same uh, mantra, I guess. Um, he was always about doing whatever you do, do to the best of your ability. And um, that really applied to our team because he really didn't care if you were a starter, if you were on the bench or whatever it was, like you had a role to play and you needed to do it to the best of your ability. And so those two people, teachers, coaches, really made an impact, I think, in how I approach work and life. Um, and then I think in terms of education and technology, in my doc program, I had the um, fortune of meeting a man named Ted Hasselbring, who has really done some extraordinary work around education technology. Um, he actually, funny story, uh, I met him when I was at an event at Vanderbilt, um, this big social event, and I had heard of him before and actually had written a, a paper on some of the work that he had done, and I was like, oh, he's the, really the one person I wanna meet at this event, because I hadn't met him yet, and he was a professor um, where I was going to school. Well, the way that I met him, I actually uh, choked on a piece of prime rib and he happened to be standing behind me and he's a former Boy Scout and he did the Heimlich and saved my life. And it's just a crazy story. And we've been friends ever since then, but he really inspired me relative to educational technology. So I've developed a couple of apps and I was fortunate to have mentoring from him. And there were times where I would say, oh, well, so-and-so is already doing this. And I would get upset because, you know, I thought somebody had taken my idea or somebody already had that idea. And he would always say, don't worry about it. Find a way to do it differently or find a way to make it better. And so um, that's kind of how I've thought about some of the, you know, interventions that I've, you know, been fortunate to work with others and um, to design and implement and such. It's, it's amazing what little insights you can get from, a teacher that always promotes going over and above. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can attest to that. Allison and I work out at Orange Theory Fitness and I <laughs> see her every Monday, Wednesday and Friday morning. I don't think I've ever seen her miss. And you know, she's a, a rock star and a tiger on the treadmill. Oh, she I just, don't know about that. <laughs> we had a, a, a one mile challenge last week and she was the, the first woman off the treadmill is the second person off. and. It's funny uh, that you say that because that's oh that was my second worst time since I've been at Orange Theory, but I've been through a lot of medical issues in the past couple of years, so that's probably part of it. But you're very kind to say that. Well, I mean, you're, <laughs> you you show up and you're you're all in full out, so that's yeah. um, 
And, and as a mom, I, I know you have two children and mm -hmm. you're totally engaged and committed to being a parent. So that's, that's a full slate. Yes, it is. Wouldn't have it any other way though. So, um, your professor at Vanderbilt inspired you into technologies and you developed a couple apps. Let's, mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about those apps and, um, what they're doing and you know sure. how they're helping in the classroom sure so when i was at vanderbilt i was studying kids uh, who have emotional behavioral disorders um, really kids with challenging behavior in the classroom and i wanted to basically take an intervention that had traditionally been done uh, with paper pencil and use technology to do it better and so and that's self-monitoring so a lot of people self-monitor things and they don't even know. It's like if you if you make a to-do list and you check things off that right. you've done it, right? We all do that. Um, fitness trackers are another good example. People that are doing like Weight Watchers where they're keeping track, you know. So we can do the same thing with challenging behavior in the classroom where we have kids um, self-monitor how they're doing behaviorally. And so the first app was pretty basic. Um, it's called score it. And actually like, <laughs> I probably wouldn't recommend it now just because we, we have another one that's much improved. Uh -huh. Um, but kids would rate their behavior on an interval system. So like every five minutes they would say, am I being respectful or am I on task during math class? And the app would graph, you know, these data and the teachers would also complete the same procedures and then they'd have a conversation about it. Um, and so that was the first one that's been on iTunes for a while. And then um, that was sort of the original idea. What we've done since then is developed, um, it's called MobiGo, Monitoring Behavior on the Go. Uh -huh. And it's the same process, but now what we have is automated decision rules within the app. So um, not to get too <laughs> educational and scientific, but in academics for kids, there is something called progress monitoring. And that means that teachers are monitoring the progress of how kids are doing with reading or math. And there are standards for what um, kids should be doing or what they should be scoring. Right. And then based on those scores, they adapt intervention or instruction. We don't have the same thing with behavior. There are no rules or guidelines on how to adapt intervention based on the numbers. So what I wanted to do is to take what we know about academics and build that into behavior and create an algorithm that um, would provide automated recommendations to teachers. Hey, the student is scoring 60% for the last five days. Why don't you increase the goal to 70% or maybe you should decrease the goal. And so that's mm -hmm. what we've done with MobiGo. Now we have this automated system and it's really the only one out there. Um, there are other people who have done really great work in this, in this space and done technology based self-monitoring for kids. Um, but I'm really proud of the fact that we have data-driven decision rules built um, inside the app. And so we've tested this in classrooms in Iowa and in Tennessee. We did a big randomized control trial, uh, found significant effects for kids. They improved their on-task behavior or academic engagement and decreased their disruptive behavior above and beyond the control group. So we're very excited. We have another grant um, in review right now to move from sort of this device-based app, which that's the one limitation of it, is it's all on the iPad, um, and take it to a web-based system so that people can be on different devices and completing the procedures at the same time. So you move it to sense. the cloud. Does your first yeah. one, does that work on a, a phone? No, everything only works on the iPad. So, so there are some significant so limitations. So the student has to have an iPad in mm -hmm. front of them. They can't do it on a phone, which is... Right. Does the school provide the iPad or does the parent have to provide the so iPad? So all of the work, I mean, because I'm a researcher, we've provided it. So I've had significant grant funding to purchase iPads and deliver them to students. And so um, we have done that. Um, now, for schools that want to continue to use it, they have to provide it. And, you know, schools have a lot of technology. But what I've found, too, is one of the reasons that we wanted to go from an app or a device base to the cloud was just sort of the array of technology. And, you know, around here, everybody's on Chromebooks. So right. um, that's 
one of the reasons we want to go to this web-based app so students can do this on their Chromebook. Well, that makes it so much easier. They can have access 24-7. I could have certainly used this when I was in elementary school. I Did you have some ch challenging behavior, Charles? Well, yeah, I had <laughs> challenges. One, I was dyslexic and didn't oh, know it. Oh, yeah. So I was one of those kids when reading came along, I was sent off to a special room where we sat around and looked at magazines. And oh, geez. Didn't really learn how to, to read, and um, it was just a challenge, and I, I was one of those kids that I was, I'm sure I'm ADD too, because I can do 200 things at once. If I have to focus on one thing, it can be well, a and challenge. That's that's where, you know, self-regulation or self-monitoring strategies like we've developed are really good for that type of issue. So we, we tend to target kids who have some hyperactivity, inattention, impulsiveness, but sort of that ADD, ADHD type of um, issues. Yeah, so I just had a hard time sitting still. So I yeah. even, so when I, by the time I got to high school, I'd, I taught myself how to read because I had a great interest in the outdoor hunting, fishing, and camping, and mm -hmm. my dad didn't do any of that. So when I would read Field and Stream and Outdoor Life and all these magazines, I would literally be sick and sick to my stomach and nauseated because it literally made me sick. Oh my gosh. But I had such a, an interest in learning about it that um, eventually it got better than my first job was with Exxon. And, I was a systems analyst looking at computer screens all day long, looking at bits and bytes mm -hmm. and de debugging programs. And somehow in that process, I rewired the neurocircuitry in my brain. You know, every once in a while I'll reverse letters, but spell check is great for that. But I learned my accommodation was to sit in the front row of the class and take copious notes. And I think I had a 3.5 in my major at Iowa by doing that, but I would go to the library and read, read a page in a textbook. I could read it three times and have no idea. I just could not make that transition mm -hmm. from the written page. Yeah. So, you know, I struggled with that. Now I, you can see, I, I read a tremendous amount. I'm probably a moderate pace, but um, I can sympathize with the kids that struggle with Learning challenges, I hate to put the word disabilities because dyslexia and ADHD, I mean, mm -hmm. if you can find a way to make it through, you have other things in creativity and innovation and like Richard Branson and there's a lot of mm -hmm. intelligent people that are dyslexic that have done move mountains, but not everyone finds their way through that maze because it can be so much of it is everyone's telling you you're bad and you're not good. So does your app focus on the good? Yeah. So that's what we do is we monitor what we would call replacement behaviors. So it's, uh, you know, the teacher and student work together to define, you know, the positive things that they want to see. And that's what they monitor. And so there's, you know, there's also some reinforcement built in just um, through the graphing and for students to be able to see um, their progress. But one of the things that, you know, I really emphasize with teachers and students and whenever I'm talking about this is that it's not necessarily about the technology, it's about the feedback. So the technology gives the teachers and the students an opportunity to have good conversations that they might not otherwise have. And so, you know, often when a student is showing challenging behavior in class, I mean, they're reprimanded over and over again. And now they're using this technology to track positive behaviors and the teacher can say, hey, I noticed you, you know, you were really on task during math today, or, you know, I really appreciated your participation. Those kind of things where now they're supposed to look for the good. And um, I don't know if you've ever read Bob Goff, but he wrote a book about, um, well, it's called Love Does. And in it, he talks about how when he, um, he was going through like a midlife crisis and decided he was going to buy like a yellow or a red Volkswagen Beetle. And as soon as uh -huh. he did that, he saw them everywhere. 
You know, it's like you see what you look for. And I've, people have had that experience when they bought a new car or they bought something new. All of a sudden, they're everywhere you see them. And so I often tell teachers, if you want to see the good, you have to look for the good. And it is sort of that rewiring, rethinking um, about behavior and how we think about kids. You know, mindset is so important in every aspect of life. But, you know, creating that safe environment where kids wherever they are in the spectrum can get feedback and, mm -hmm. you know, celebrate the, the little wins. So let's talk about the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health. Where did that idea come from and how did that come to be? I know <laughs> it, 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 op you, it opened in June of 2021. Mm -hmm. So tell us about its evolution and where it came from. So, the credit really goes to our Dean, Dan Clay. Um, this was sort of his vision uh, prior to this ever, you know, prior to June of 2021, he had been uh, working with the State Department around this idea and had also gotten some philanthropic support uh, to really bring this to fruition. And then when COVID hit, that kind of slowed down the talks with the State Department. But something else really positive came out of it is, you know, the, the CARES Act um, to provide a bunch of money to states to help with, um, you know, schools getting back to learning. And so with that money, the governor gave us $20 million dollars um, to start this center. And so that was announced um, June 23rd of 2021. And I wasn't sure how I was gonna be involved in the center. I mean, I, I, I knew it was happening, but uh, I wasn't sure I was gonna be tapped to be the executive director. And all of a sudden, you know, I found myself in that position. <laughs> um, Dan Clay had asked me, you know, would you be interested in this? Would you be willing to do it? And so we talked about it, you know, over the summer. And by August, I found myself doing something that I had never sort of imagined doing, actually, because I will say being a professor is the best job in the world. I love doing research. I love, you know, working with students. Um, so this was this is a new experience, um, but it's it's been quite the ride of trying to build a center over the last you know year and a half and then also deliver on everything that you know is laid out in our mou with the state so um there's been a lot going on for sure oh exciting time so the state department is this the federal at the federal level no or the state at, the, level? at the state level so the state of iowa so um our mou is with the department of education so um, is this, so you've got the Department of Education and the State Department in, in Des Moines. Mm -hmm. So what, what drove the State Department to get an interest in education? Well, I'm the State Department of Education. Oh, 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 oh so when you say the State Department, I'm and not, thinking. not the Department of State, but yeah. Okay. So the department, that makes complete sense. Okay. So, um. Did Dan take this idea to the state or did they, they come, how did this evolve? Which... Um, I think that's kind of a question for Dan actually. Um, but he had been working with Ryan Wise, um, who is, uh, now I think the Dean of the college of ed and at Drake university, okay. but he used to be the director, um, and at the state of Iowa. But they had been talking for a while that, you know, Dan's background is as a counseling psychologist. And so mental health has always been super important to him. And I know that his, both of his sons, or two of his sons lost uh, classmates to suicide over the last few years. And um, so I think, you know, there's just a recognition that we have the expertise um, at the University of Iowa to maybe help around the state with, you know, kids who have mental health issues. So where did the, the Scanlon part of the name come from? Yeah, so um, we have a family that has the Scanlons who have donated a significant amount of money um, to this initiative and so that's why the center was renamed so how does um the initial well let's talk about the 
the core initial problems that you started out trying to address. And then we'll talk about how that's evolving and what you're learning and what insights you're gaining. Cause you're, you know, you're, you've been in it a year and a half or so. Well, the timing of it is all kind of interesting because it's, you know, as we're getting going is all, is also when, you know, students are back in school full time and with, you know, COVID, they were out of school for a while, then it was a hybrid situation, back and forth between in school and out of school. And so when students went back to school full time, we saw that there was kind of this big uptick in you know social, emotional, behavioral issues. And so our focus initially was really to support students. But what we have learned is that educators are also struggling too. I mean, because, you know, they were, they went through the pandemic as well. And I have to say, even though we're talking about this in relation to COVID, is that these issues have been around for a while. I think right. just COVID sort of brought everything to light and maybe exacerbated some things that were already going on. And so while we are focused on improving outcomes for kids, we're also focused on improving outcomes for the educators that serve them. So one of the things that we're doing right now is a podcast, video podcast series on educator wellness, because sometimes, you know, I think our teachers, frankly, say I should, maybe shouldn't say this, get a lot of crap, you know, and um, they, they take on so much. And so sometimes they don't take care of themselves. And if they're not able to take care of themselves, how can we expect them to, you know, take care of our kids every day? So that's, that's kind of one thing that we've learned is that this, this problem of mental health in schools is not just about kids. It's also about adults. So in, if I recall correctly, there's before they graduate from high school, somewhere between 13 to 16% of Iowa kids consider suicide. Is that, does that right. sound about yeah. right? Yeah. So it's the second, I think second leading cause of death amongst adolescents. And one of the scary things is that we're seeing these numbers where it's kids younger and younger who are attempting suicide. And that, you know, as a parent is super alarming to me. Um, so, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that six-year-old boy that shot his teacher last week. Oh, my I mean, gosh. How does, this, how does this even happen, Allison? Where do they get the guns, and how do they even... You know, I, I just don't understand how a six-year-old is shooting a teacher. I don't either. I mean, it's, it's almost unfathomable. I, I'm, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that, because it's just so disturbing on every level. I don't... One of the things that I don't, I, I struggle with a little bit, is maybe just the general level of anger and the lack of respect um, between kids and other kids. And um, um, well, kids have always been brutal. I had two daughters, and young girls are brutal. Um, what they say to each other and what they do, but um, you know, I don't know how we find more kindness and compassion mm -hmm. but i think from the way things are going in society with the polarization and all the anger and all these these views that people if we could find a way back to the middle where we're we can listen to other people's points of view and their pain and suffering but also you know try to work together to solve problems would be better so i'm you know i'm wondering in the future of school, it seems like school might be the only safe place that a lot of these kids have. They might be oh, in broken sure. homes where their parents are either not together or there's a lot of anger and a lot of violence. And, you know, how teachers and administrators have this huge challenge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned your app. When I was a kid, if everyone behaved like I did, there wouldn't be it'd take five or 10 hours after school for the teacher to document it. Now, you know, with technology and apps and mm -hmm. um, if you can streamline the process, give positive feedback and um, allow the teachers to be more engaged. But, you know, I wonder how 
a young teacher who doesn't have the years of experience in the classroom and the insights you have through all your um, special needs education, how they can identify the problems, then know what accommodations are. So technology somehow, I think, will help young teachers. I don't know how, but you, you might have some insights into that. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think our younger teachers are probably more adept at technology. Um, and so, and also maybe more willing to implement things with technology just purely based on age and, you know, being digital natives and all that. Right. Um, but a lot of, I think, improvement could come based on what we do in pre-service education. So what do we teach our undergraduates who are learning to be teachers? And one of the things that you talked about was just, you know, creating a kind and safe environment. Well, there's a lot of pushback on this, even thinking about teaching that in schools. Why is that? I exactly, I don't know. Um, it's, it's where does the pushback come back? Come, where well, is it coming from? I think there's a lot of sort of misinformation about of equating like social and emotional learning with critical race theory, and you know, you know how it is. Things things get politicized when they shouldn't, and oh, it's so. unfortunate to me because you know when you ask when you ask employers you know, what are the most important skills that you look for when hiring somebody? I mean, nobody, nobody talks about, well, I hope they have memorized the periodic table of the elements, you know, they're talking about, well, are they good communicators? Can they solve problems? Do they take initiative? Do they, you know, all sort of these social skills, right? Well, how do they learn that? Like you said, you, you don't know where kids come from. Some kids may never be taught those things in their home. And if we can teach them in schools where it's, it's kind of a win, it is, it's not kind of, it is a win-win because not only are we teaching kids lifelong skills that they need to be successful, we're also helping to create positive and safe environments, which make it easier for them to learn. Well, I think one of the things that COVID, the pandemic emphasized is that put people more in isolation and confinement. They spent more time in, in digital modes. But mm-hmm. when I was a kid, we'd go outside and we'd play sandlot football or baseball or run around the woods. And play is such a, an important part, as you know, of cognitive development that it, it helps children develop communication skills and norms. And it also has a lot to do with their ultimate intelligence and brain size. Um, so when they're not playing and they're not learning these things, um, today you just look around and you wonder how much, you know, half of the kids are, if they're in athletics or semi-pro athletes at age seven, <laughs> you know, they're on state and national travel teams and they go to practice hours every day and they don't have any free time. And um, I think parents have stepped in and are making a lot of decisions and choices for the kids and that the kids don't get to go out and play. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're a young, young boy and you get in a disagreement with another young boy, sometimes you roll up the sleeves mm-hmm. and you duke it out, but you mean you, you learn, learn, you learn those skills the hard way, <laughs> right? You learn, you work through the problems, but you work through the problems and you learn what works and what doesn't. And you, you know, hopefully can refine these skills, but we've stripped all this early childhood exploration and play out of our society and parents don't want the kids to fail at anything but they don't let them you know innovation is a series of experiments and as you know you learn from the experiments so you know in really innovative organizations they measure how many times they've failed because if you're not failing you're not trying so I, I just wonder as a society we've stripped so much of the evolution of children and how they, through play, learn how to communicate. Um, Dan Clay, when I interviewed him, he said one of the most important skills is empathy. Mm-hmm. But emotional intelligence and empathy, how do you get that if you're buried in a computer screen? Then you, you go from there to basketball practice and baseball practice and you never get a chance to do anything. I mean, 
every minute. I don't know. I'll let you talk about some of that and the challenges well, it creates on growing up today. Because oh, you're I a mean, mom. I, yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, I think about it. I was a college athlete, and um, I, I just can't fathom like what it would have been like growing up um, back then as opposed to like what my kids are going through because they're all playing, you know, club sports, you know, playing club basketball, playing club softball. And, you know, it's practice, practice, practice. And it's, it's such a dilemma because in my head, it's like, well, if you don't get them in that, then they get behind. But if you, if you do get them, then are they missing out on exactly the things that you talked about? Sort of that play piece. But, you know, you talked about, kids learning through experience, but they can also learn in schools and be taught empathy. I mean, those are things that I would contend should be explicitly taught in schools. And, you know, we have lessons for that. We can teach kids empathy. We can teach kids cooperation, you know, collaboration, all of the, the social and emotional skills that they need to be successful. And just if if I was, going to add one thing to that I would say the whole experimentation innovation and failure failure learning that you the first time through you're not going to solve every problem in life so when you have a hard problem you're trying to work through in school as a kid or with a group of kids trying to help each other you know accepting that it's okay to fail you might not solve every issue up front over time you get stronger and you learn from these experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I used to sponsor the Denver school system and this was probably 10 or 12 years ago. They had a a mindfulness yoga program in the the Denver school systems and they taught, you would go to the gym and they would have short yoga classes and you would learn how to connect with your breath and how to sit and how to clear your mind. And, um, I should follow up with them and see how, where that is today. But you know, some of these things where you teach mindfulness Mm -hmm. and you teach them how to just pause, take a breath. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Um, is anything like that happening in other States? It is. I mean, it's happening in our state. That's actually, you know, one of the things that we work with educators and students on, so we have professional development around that. Um, I think we also talk about it in terms of an intervention who, for kids who might struggle with anxiety um, and sort of just that, that angst. Um, so yeah, I mean, that is definitely happening. I think people, at least in my field, realize that that is right. one potential way to support kids you know I think um, from what I understand from the reading and research I've done so much of the depression and anxiety comes from lack of social connection lack of connection to others lack of connection to a purpose I mean no I, I think that will be an important role that education plays going forward is helping you know, unfortunately, there's students that have learning challenges, whatever they are, but students can be incredibly mean and vicious and inflict pain on each other. And I don't know how we teach 7, 10, 11-year-olds how to be kind and how to help people that are suffering instead of ridiculing them and making them feel worse because, I mean, that... That's a challenge. I mean, do you do you guys think about that in any of your research? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about just research around positive behavior interventions and supports, which is um, a three-tiered model of prevention and intervention. So in that model, we teach all kids in the building, not just a handful, all kids, a certain set of expectations. And those expectations are determined by a school team that 
figures out, you know, what does our community really value? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it might be, we want to teach kids to be respectful. And it's not just respectful in a certain setting. It's all settings of the building. And what respect looks like in a classroom might look different than respect in the cafeteria or respect on the playground. And so um, in schools that are implementing this type of system of prevention, you know, there is explicit teaching of what it means to be respectful or to be kind or to be safe. Um, and there's modeling and there's practice and there's feedback so that, that kids learn that. And it's, it's about teaching kids those skills, but it's also about creating safe and consistent environments for kids so that they know this is what I have to do to be successful in this school setting. Um, and it just, you know, creates that structure that kids need while also them teaching them good skills that are going to help them, you know, not just in school, but outside of school as well. So in the, in the respect model, um, and I'm thinking not only in school, but in life afterwards, wherever you go in teams, do teachers in schools uh, have a philosophy where they teach the really smart kids that are way ahead to understand that there's others that are struggling and to actually acknowledge their struggles in a compassionate way and help them in their learning process? Or does that, does that, is there any time for those that are ahead to help lift up the ones that are struggling and do it in a way where they don't make them feel stupid mm-hmm. or dumb, but you know, you know, can I help you with that? Cause you, it's obvious when kids are really struggling, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I mean, you can just look at them and see that they're dejected and they don't know where to turn. Or mm-hmm. how, how does that play yeah, into the? I mean, the... I think there are kind of formal, like peer tutoring or peer mentoring types of programs that schools may have in place. But whether or not teachers are teaching that type of empathy and then support is, I mean, probably more on an individual basis, unless it's you know a school initiative that says, "Oh, we're all going to do this." It's a good question. I'm not sure I have a good well, I mean, answer I, for it. The, the good students who go home and have a lot of support from their parents and who learned how to read you know, before they were in first grade, mm-hmm. you know, they've got to jump on it. But, um, and some of them probably get bored if they're, if they're not challenged enough. But if you can challenge students to help the ones that need help, that's a different kind of challenge, but, right. and, and you know, how do you reward that and how you, you teach them how to feel good about that. Mm-hmm. You know, someone's struggling and it's not all about me. Um, if we can, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about no kids left behind, but you know, if the students in the classroom are helping the others that need it and they can be a little bit better and feel a little better about themselves. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all on, the community and society and mm-hmm. I mean it's a big challenge but I, I see schools playing more of a role in the safe zone and creating teaching people how to interact because once yeah. the metaverse and web 3 gets here they're going to go deeper into you know putting on their virtual reality glasses and their headphones mm-hmm. and spending eight hours a day with avatars and you know this human connection if we're not careful can go away and that's just going to make yeah. suicide and mental agitation and frustration depression accelerate so well it's interesting that you were talking about um the human connection it's like we're more connected than we've ever been by technology and yet we have all these people who don't feel connected right and i don't know where it starts but some somewhere along the line they start feeling bad about themselves or they have, they lack confidence or self-respect. And I don't, I mean, it could start at home with parents telling them they're not trying or they're stupid or mm-hmm. just ignoring them. Or it could be in school where people, um, make them feel bad for whatever reason. But, you know, once you have this lack of confidence, it probably can spiral and just get worse and worse and create more psychological behaviors that are kind of fed by, the environment that they're either the blessed or and not. social media. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, it's, um, 
you know, when I was a kid, I, I said earlier that I had this huge interest in the outdoors. Mm-hmm. So throughout um, middle school and even in high school, we lived on the edge of Iowa City. So I'd come home from school and I'd head out into the woods. It was a 15-minute walk and I was out in the woods. And, you know, this connection with nature and learning how to ground, um, it's amazing how how innovative you can be if you just go for a walk, you know, around the reservoir, around the lake, and you get into nature and you're not really thinking, but your subconscious mind can process lots of things and give you lots of pathways or ideas and you know how to solve problems. And I think if humans spent more time outside in your bare feet in the grass mm-hmm. and just connecting with, with nature, it, it helps a lot. Oh, for sure. I, you know, you asked initially how the center got started and prior to us receiving funding, um, the current couple of the current directors and I and Dan were out in Aspen um, working on some stuff related to getting a center started. And we visited, um, I think it's called Aspen Day School. And the, I think the kids spend like 50% of their day outside doing exactly what you're talking about, you know, hiking up the mountain and walking along the river. And just that's that was what the philosophy of the school was exactly what you were talking about and I just kept thinking oh wouldn't this be a great place to go to school um you know and obviously it's a it's a private school so it's like kids who can afford to go there in Aspen of course it's like just this really rich area um but it's it's too bad that we don't do more of that really yeah, it's too bad we don't have a thousand acres in the, like right. the, the new Liberty High School. They're probably only a quarter of a mile from, you know, access mm-hmm. to thousands of acres of woods along the, the reservoir where it would be relatively easy mm-hmm. to load up a bus and, you know, yep. go spend time in nature. But that's a, a lot of monastery schools do that. Yeah. Also, I mean, beyond just nature, just sort of exercise and moving, and there's, you know, a ton of evidence to suggest that exercise really helps with anxiety and depression. And, um, you know, it, it always drove me crazy listening to um, or hearing about schools that were cutting PE programs because I'm like, these kids need to get up and do something and be active because that, you know, supports their social emotional development as well as their academic development so when um i know that when i was in um, elementary school we would have been a lot better served if every two hours they made us go outside for 20 or 30 minutes Mm -hmm. and run around rain or sign it's also why we shouldn't take away recess (laughs) same exact thing yeah i can't it just some of this is just get outside and burn off some steam yeah. you, you know you get a young boy he's got a lot of energy and you want him to sit there for seven hours and not move it it's they're just not it's, it's nobody not is work. wired to do that yeah humans we grew up <laughs> as hunter gatherers we were outside we were moving around so i um i noticed on your bio that one of the things that you talked about allison was bridging the gap between um, basic research and applied research and I think in education I don't know if you how you move forward if you're not having a strong applied connection and how do you think about that at, in your oh yeah I mean I think this is one of the biggest challenges I mean we think about something as basic as praise telling kids what they're doing well and just that positive affirmation or feedback and how easy it is to do. And yet we can go into any school in America and see that praise is not being delivered as frequently as it should be according to the research. And it's, it's just one of the easiest things to do. So why is that? I don't know. Maybe it's, you know, I happen to think that some of that starts in pre-service education. And I think 
there are kind of a couple of issues. One, making sure that we in pre-service education are teaching teachers the skills that they need mm -hmm. to effectively manage a classroom. It's not just about learning the content, but it's learning how to deliver the content while also attending to all the kids in your class and the various issues that are going on. And there are really specific strategies for doing that, and we have to make sure that we teach them. But the other piece is kind of helping teachers or pre-service teachers understand research. You know, it's the reality is as a researcher, we, you know, do these elaborate studies and then we go and publish them in these obscure journals that nobody reads unless they're another researcher. Very, I, I would it'd be hard, I would be hard pressed to find um, a lot of educators who are reading peer reviewed journals. Now they might read sort of our research to practice journals, um, but there have to be other ways that we can get the information into the hands of you know the people that need it. I personally love data, so when you know sh people show me some study, you know where the data indicate there was a significant effect, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I'm moved by that. But most people are not moved by that; they're moved by stories, and so you know. And going into a school and working with, you know, current educators, I have to think about, well, what is going to move them to actually implement this practice that we know has strong evidence? And it's not probably putting up a graph of numbers and p-values and, uh -huh. you know, effect sizes. It's going to be the individual stories. And so it's, and it's interesting because, you know, as a researcher, I didn't, learn you know in my grad program how to tell the story i learned how to do the science if that makes right. sense well stories are so impactful i think all great leaders are great storytellers mm -hmm. but i um so i sat on the university of iowa research foundation for seven years on the board they had outside directors at one point which got involved with all of the licensing of IP coming out of the university. And, um, you know, I had some strong feelings on innovation, but I was in a two hour NSF National Science Foundation meeting last week where they're, they're not happy with the level of innovation and applied learnings from the research that they're funding, the billions of dollars they put in it. So they're starting these um, regional innovation engines and mm -hmm. totally changing the way they collaborate and they're kind of in the beta stage of defining that but I'm collaborating with Dan and some other people mm -hmm. in the medical school about um, creating an applied AI lab and focusing on health tech medicine and the the research that you're, you guys are doing on school mental health fits right into that. But um, if you start with what are the real big problems we're trying to challenge and you get cross-functional teams. So we have people in engineering, but if, if, it's, if this works and we're talking about setting up um, a lab outside of the um, university that's not governed by the Board of Regents and all the university politics, which can bring things to a halt, funded through businesses that have an interest in healthcare and mental health, and collaborating with the National Science Foundation and multiple departments. But it's a different mindset where you might get a grant from the NSF and you might have another $20 million in funding from Microsoft or Amazon who's interested in healthcare and, and changing the delivery system and the cost, but mm -hmm. how you bring all these players together and pick a big problem, then figure out which each college and each department brings to the table, then find a way to collaborate that's gonna solve real problems. So if you take you know, this, this challenge of creating an environment in education and doing applied research where you collect data, but you also have real targets on how you're going to make an impact and what the deliverables are that are going to change. I, mean, I think you can do 
because of technology and AI and the ability to collect massive amounts of data, if you're doing basic research, it's going to take 12 years. Well, in three years, whatever you were going to take 12 years to do is obsolete with mm -hmm. all of the technologies, yeah. um, with you know Chat GPT and all these things you, you can leverage. So if you can get the data and summarize it, you can look at the data and it tells you a story. But then you have to figure out how to tell a story about how we're going to mm -hmm. solve massive societal problems. So we're actually trying to put put that together. Um, and there's some processes for loose networks on how you can get people to come together and collaborate um, and build accountability. It's called strategic doing and the NSF is working with the Kauffman Foundation and strategic doing to develop a new process to bring all these interests together to solve I call it more applied research where you're solving real problems and you're, you're leveraging your data because the NFS I mean, they publicly state that we're falling behind the rest of the world. So we need to find a way to when we invest billions to get something out of it. So there's a balance between, mm -hmm. you know, this gap between basic and applied. But I think in education, you're a lot more applied, at least mm -hmm. from what I'm hearing you talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Do you have a question? <laughs> Well, no, I just went on a long rant to talk about, you know, another, another thing that I think is broken from in the university system. If you look at a culture of innovation and disruption, and this is not anything you can comment on. I'm just commenting. Um, <laughs> if you look at the foundations in places like MIT and Harvard standard have huge, huge endowments, mm -hmm. but how much for example, does Harvard or the University of Iowa take and invest in research that our faculty is doing? Um, they invest in private equity and they invest in venture capital funds, but you know, I don't see many universities investing in the applied research that they're doing that can impact the world and monetize and generate huge revenue streams. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the challenges we're trying to um, address through this applied AI lab where we get NSF funding, NIH funding, then major corporations that have an interest in how you change healthcare delivery and how you make it better. Funding it, then you get researchers and academics and the university hospitals and clinics and university medical school where you've got a, a clinical operation mm -hmm. and an academic thing working together with engineering at play AI and education and how you evolve the whole network. So that's a lot of what I'm personally passionate about because we have to do, we can do so much better and so much faster, but people just have to come in with a different mindset. Well, it's interesting. You're talking about sort of this cross-disciplinary work and I was part of, um, it was the neuroscience and mental health ideas lab, I think last last year and it brought together people who um, had some kind of interest in mental health and you had to apply to attend and we went through you know this whole process these different seminars and then we came up with a problem that we wanted to solve in groups but it's that type of collaboration is so difficult because people um just speak different languages in, in many cases when you right. have sort of the hard sciences and the social sciences and you might need somebody from engineering or for business. Um, and just it, the collaboration is fun. It's exciting. It's interesting, but it's also hard, but that's part of the challenge, right? Right. So that's, you know, part of strategic doing, um, you start with a framing question. What is the big problem that's inspirational you want to solve? And it's, it's designed to solve regional economic economic crises and other big problems where it takes a lot of people to solve it from a lot of different organizations, but no one reports to anyone. Then it's you start looking at what you know what could we do, then what will what um, will we do? Then you start matching resources um, of what everyone brings to the table. Then 
what should we do? Then you come up with these short-term deliverables um, in 30 days. So how are we going to start this experiment in collaboration? But you know, it, is, it expects everyone to spend two or three hours a month because you got other jobs. And start yeah, there's there's the big trick in academia. Yeah, <laughs> move, moving forward to how you work together, but it's a whole different way of organizing and approaching problems. And the National Science Foundation is jumping all over this, mm-hmm. and it's a different way to communicate and build complex communities and networks, but that's what a university is. And there's a lot of smart people doing great things that want to make a bigger impact that if you give them an environment and a way to work together and a way to measure results, then some of it has to do with changing the way it's not about how many citations. I mean, it probably is about how many citations you you get published. Until you're tenured, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, but you know, but what really matters, and maybe there's other measurables for people that are doing applied research that in the next three years we're going to change, make an impact on the state, you know, the mental health of children and faculty and educators. Mm-hmm. And something has to change. And the technology can support the humans in solving these problems, but we've got to find this common language Mm -hmm. and this vocabulary and learn how to listen to each other and not be so worried about your individual grant, but there's a bigger funding pool where we all have to work together and we all share in the funds, but we're all solving problems that none of us can do quickly on our own. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you talk because you sound like such a visionary. And in my head, I'm thinking, okay, there's some really, really important things that have to happen within the university to sort of bring that to fruition. And, you know, I think that was one thing I thought about with the ideas lab that I attended is, you know, it was so fun and interesting to talk with people and work with people outside of my field but we don't have time. We don't get the time to do that on a regular basis. And like you said, because we have other jobs, we have other things that we have to attend to. So how do you set up the system to enable people to, to be a part of that? Right. So, I mean, I, I was thinking yesterday how we have this problem with, in healthcare with doctors and nurses and technicians finding them, well, we burn so many people out because they're there to take care of people and serve people, but the administrative burden and all the other stuff they have to do. And if you're an academic, you have to be on all these committees. So how do you, I, I believe that with the right collaboration between academics and clinical people in AI and getting the right data and the right systems that we could cut out 50% 50% of the cost of healthcare delivery. Well, at the same time, if you've got doctors that are working 60, 70 hours a week and they've been doing it for years through the pandemic and they can't keep staff, they're burned out. Mm-hmm. So if you can improve the operation process efficiency and all the administrative stuff and make that be automated, then you can hire more staff where you can make it enjoyable you know right now nurses i mean they can go become mobile nurses and make two or three times more money so why would you want to work 70 hours a week when you can go be a mobile nurse work 40 hours a week and make more money Mm -hmm. so if you think about the challenges that we have in healthcare, we can leverage technology but the discussions i'm having with various deans are about how we create a standalone entity outside of the university that's fully funded that can bring people like yourself and people from engineering and uh, psychiatry, they still have their university appointments and they still have their university salary, but how can they step out of the university for a percentage of their time mm-hmm. to solve these massive problems funded by NSF and industry? Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to buy out of their time. <laughs> say what? I said you just have to buy out of their time. Yeah, but, I mean, but they get an incentive. And mm-hmm. if, if you think about just theoretically, um, we could let's talk about Iowa because that's what I have an interest in, and we could talk about Harvard or Stanford. But Iowa being one of the largest teaching hospitals in the country or the world, if you captured 
data on outcomes and independent of the, the customer, I mean, the patient specifics, you, you obviously because of HIPAA can't do that, but you can build these databases that give insights into disease and with the AI and the machine learnings, mm -hmm. um, you're looking at different elements of blood test and imaging where your predictive ability, you can start catching cancers before they even become stage one. But those databases are worth billions of dollars and they can be monetized, but, and the technology is there today to create these things. So how do you create the data that's gonna give you insights and give you the feedback? I mean, if you're a teacher, there's technologies now with cameras where you could sense, you know, every three minutes, every kid in the room, you could look at their eye movements, you could mm -hmm. look at their facial expressions, you could hear their intonations, and you could say in a little, earphone and the teacher saying Johnny in row four is stressing out there is something going on mm -hmm. you might want to pay attention to it that a, a young teacher may not know but the technology mm -hmm. that's out there today is so amazing if we figure out how to use it for the good and there's and, the key and there's a dark side to technology but we can't mm -hmm. be afraid of I, I don't know so it's exciting you think, so I wonder about this because you know I know people that are working on this type of stuff and I always wonder what the process is for getting parents to buy into that. Just think about having, you know, that type of technology in the classroom. Well, I think it's a, an education process, Allison. So I do this daily, um, technology newsletter that's curated by, um, this GPT technology, it searches 500,000 sources. It, you know, verifies the accuracy and of it. It's all positive, but, um, they have to understand what the technologies are and how fast it's moving. Then be open to how it can help their children. I mean, understanding the flip side and understanding as you get more and more immersed in this, I mean, the parents, I'm guessing that many, many parents have a certain level of anxiety just about the rate of change. Mm -hmm. And humans don't do well with linear change, but think of exponential change where everything on every front is changing yeah. um, so fast. Um, they have to find a way to maintain the balance. So I talk about the disruptive innovation, the human connection, you know, the future of work, what does the future of all this look like? And what is, um, um, and ground and being grounded in nature is how you maneuver. And I, I call it the, the navigator wave because it's like a tsunami of technology coming mm -hmm. and it's engulfing the whole planet. And it's, it's not the, I don't even, we talk about innovators and entrepreneurs whose wild ideas and exponential thinking are changing the universe not the world, the universe mm -hmm. where we live, work and play. So, and there's so much information that how do you process it mm -hmm. and get ahead of it so you feel comfortable with it? I mean, so that's a challenge for society, but that's why I think the human connection and grounding in nature have to be part of the future of education and balancing all this disruptive technology because it's, it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It's overwhelming mm -hmm. if you can't find a way to do process it and figure out what it means. Yeah. And the one thing I'm not comfortable with at this point, and maybe I'll change my mind in a year or two is these sensors you can put in your brain where you have direct access to Google or other search engines where you can in your mind, you can think, um, um, go give me a profile on Alison Brune or go, what's the status of this? And it'll give you neural feedback real time through your thoughts. That's wild. Yeah, that is wild with the tech. I mean, technologies where you can sit down and talk for two or three minutes and outline a script for a movie and it'll go out, I mean an idea, it'll write the script, it'll film the movie, um, it'll do all the music, it'll create a full production movie just from a short description. What does that, I mean, that changes 
so much. Mm-hmm. And the technology is so powerful that as humans, if we can figure out how to leverage it as our partner, not to replace us, but how we can be more well, effective. And that's the key, right? I mean, as soon as you said that, I was like, what about all those people's jobs? <laughs> Do you think about that? Yeah, but you you need to think of technology as your partner and not replacing your job. Because if you think about it as replacing your job, then fear is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Then to even be open to what how it can be your partner. And that's a societal thing. And that's what I'm trying to address through this daily newsletter it's i mean you can read it in two minutes on your phone and it summarizes all these different 10 technologies and things a day then if you want to learn more you click on it but i'm actually thinking about doing one for doctors it's university Mm -hmm. hospitals and clinics that will give them a daily summary of everything that's going on in their respective field that they can scan and one to two minutes. I mean, they don't have two or three hours a day to go read abstracts yeah. and journal articles, but if there's something that they're really interested in, then they can deep dive mm-hmm. and get the, the more specifics. So yeah. it's how do you use technology just to stay informed? So it's exciting. Yeah, I could use that. And I get, you know, you, you and I ought to sit down and you help me. We'll do one for education. Yeah. At mental health. We could do it in 90 minutes, then the Jeep, the artificial, it, it learns, um, you help it learn, mm-hmm. then it learns from all the educators that read it and what they click on. Then it modifies the content based on what people are looking at and how they're engaging with it. But, um, interesting. We, let's do that. That's really interesting. My mind's kind of spinning right now thinking about what that might look like in terms of a resource for uh, people that are, you know, accessing our center. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's some other things with some social groups that I think would be a, and I'd be happy to facilitate this, um, that would draw in parents and educators into forums where you can actually discuss this. Mm-hmm. That'll be, topic for our next podcast all right (laughs) okay allison well we've got good energy going here i really appreciate your insights and your your engagement it's been fun and i look forward to our next conversation all right well thanks for having me we covered a lot we did (laughs) thanks for joining us on the ampex podcast hope you enjoyed this episode make sure not to miss future episodes and please rate the show wherever you get your podcast Thanks to our awesome production team, Lindsay Soderberg, social and digital marketing, Taylor Higgins, video production, and Seth Nielsen, marketing. See you next time.